Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. What I need to do at the beginning um, is to explain to you briefly, and perhaps uh, it will be for many of you a reminder of something to do with the Old Testament worship system uh, in the tabernacle, the Jewish tabernacle. It was a unique place on earth, literally. There was no other place like this. It was the one place on earth where God had said he would live. among the Israelites. If you were to turn to Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, then have them make a sanctuary for me, God told Moses, and I will dwell amongst them. Quite remarkable. Chapter 29 of the same book, verse 44, so I will consecrate the tent of meeting, that's another of its names, and the altar, and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me there as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell amongst them. That was God's whole purpose in rescuing his people, out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. He wanted to live amongst them, right in their midst. And because they were camping, on a long 40-year camping trip, he had said, please make me a tent too, and I will come and camp among you. So the dwelling place of God uh, is this mobile tent thing um, called the tabernacle. And you can read the instructions as to how it was to be made. Everything light, portable, very careful design um, at the uh, back end of the book of Exodus. <clears throat> there was no image there, of course, no idol, because God himself um, lived amongst them and traveled with them wherever they went. Now, I want you to imagine the design of the thing. Um, it was in two parts. Let's imagine um, hanging down here is a very thick, beautifully embroidered curtain dividing the building into two parts, effectively. This, where you all are, is the, our, the, 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 the holy place where priests serve. There are some limited bits of furniture that there is on this side. Uh, as you approach this way, uh, there is a, a seven-branched candlestick giving light because the whole thing is covered over. Um, over there, there is a table containing 12 loaves of bread, replaced there every week. And right up here, next to this big veil, which is embroidered with these um, heavenly beings, these cherubim, is, uh, let's put this here, an altar, where incense went up. Now, in behind this curtain, is what was called the most holy place. This is the holy place where priests serve, and then in behind is what is known as the most holy place. And one person, one man, from only one tribe, the tribe of Levi, the high priest, went once a year. He didn't go in and out, he went in that once a year, and in there was what was termed the Ark of the Covenant, a big um, wooden box made of acacia wood, which is light to carry, and it contained those two stone tablets on which God himself, with his finger, had written the law, the Ten Commandments. There were one or two other things in the box. Uh, on the top of the box there was a gold lid, and then shaped out of the one piece of gold were two holy cherubim, angelic beings, who were looking down with sort of x-ray eyes onto this gold slab 
behind which was the plate of the law, the perfection required of God. Have you got, you got that idea? It's a, it's a two-part thing. And one day a year of solemn holy day, the day of atonement, we spoke about it a little bit um, this morning, the high priest would go solemnly in, carrying a bowl in which was blood. He would not, dare not go in without that evidence that a substitute had died for his own sin and for the sin of all the people. It's a solemn day because the question was always, would God accept him? The high priest, in that sense, was the go-between between God and the worshippers outside. He represented the worshippers to God and he stood and brought the blessing of God to the worshippers. Once a year, in and out. And then actually, out beyond this court where all you priests are, um, is the outer approach way. That contained um, the first altar that you came to as you stepped into the door, um, like a doormat really. And what did you do when you came in from your walk? Get cleaned up in your house at home. Where do you put the door now? In the bathroom? By the bed? Do you hang it on the wall? No, it's right where it needs to be, taking off as much of the dirt as you can at your first step in. There was an altar there to deal with the dirt in our lives. And then when you went past the, the altar where sacrifice was made, you came to a great big brass uh, dish containing water where the priests wash themselves before the ceremonies and uh, before continuing on in worship. See, if you were going to come in on a straight line in towards God, there needs to be a There needs to be a washing, a cleansing. And then you come in up this middle line and you need to learn to pray. And then there is this great big veil. And we know what happened to that. God tore it apart like tissue paper from the top to the bottom, just ripped it apart and said, You see, it had been a great big no entry sign. No, keep back. You cannot come close. Stay where you are. You are unholy. You cannot simply come towards the end. No entry. And on that day when Christ died, gone. Come. Please. Come into the most holy place. That is the kind of thing that is going to be explained for us here in this chapter. This tabernacle, with its journey into the most holy place where God lived, is like a thought model, um, if you like, an architect's model, so that you may see a reality that is much bigger. You know how an architect works, and they make little tiny things, and if you're going to buy the building, you can look around, and, and you can shift that about, and, and so on. It's an architect's model of the way reality is between this world and heaven. So the part that we've reached in the book of Hebrews is the bit that is now particularly describing the cross of Jesus. Let me read to you again those verses um, in chapter 9. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he came bringing the gifts of God to us, he came as the high priest of the good things that are now already here, that he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not just a building on earth, but right through into heaven itself. He went right through that, the, the tabernacle that is not man-made, that is not a part of this creation. We didn't make it. He didn't enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctified them so that they are outwardly clean. That's how the priests operated. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse us, not outwardly, but our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Here is the ultimate high priest, says the writer. 
not just for Jews, but for all of us, representing God to us. What has he done? He's gone right through into heaven. By what right? Did he take animals' blood? No, certainly not. His own. And he has secured for us an eternal redemption, says the writer. In other words, not one that needs to be repeatedly bought and paid for every time you sin. Again and again every year. He has bought for you an eternal, everlasting redemption. The old sacrificial system, you see, which God had set up, was enough to make a priest acceptable on the outside. If he touched a dead body or he'd done something he shouldn't, he was at least allowable now, because of these old animal sacrifices, to come and perform his duties. But those sacrifices did nothing to a man on the inside. The blood of Christ actually brings about change in our conscience inwardly. It's, it's not a mere animal. It's the Son of Almighty God giving himself up for us. So that now, says the writer, you are set free to truly worship and serve the living God free from guilt and fear. You cannot truly worship God with a dirty conscience. Can't do it. Not as God intended. Then work. You feel a hypocrite, and God knows that you are. But this changes you on the inside, so that you can stand before God and truly worship Him, knowing that you are accepted and welcomed and loved and forgiven. So, what's He said so far? Christ has gone right through into the real heaven to appear before God on our behalf, bearing with Him the evidence of His own death which achieves for us an everlasting forgiveness so that we can know that we're forgiven on the inside and be sure of it so that now we may serve God from a heart that is cleansed and renewed and happy and full of joy and secure as children should be. That's what he's done. The difference between the outward and the inward. You know when, you know the, the story of um, the Passover and the Exodus and the animals were slain and the blood was painted on, on the doorposts. It's all on the outside. When you take communion, what do you do? You dip two fingers in the wine and you smear it all over on the outside. At least not. You get it inside. That's what you say. Get this wine, which is a symbol of my blood, which cleanses into you like a good dough inside rather than outside. And so we come to the conclusion of chapter 9, where he's been stressing that this sacrifice was so big, the redemption was so eternal, it was so complete and sufficient, so once and for all, no repeat needed. And then he explains it in verse 27. He says, look, you live one life. You live one life. It is given unto you to live once. And after that, comes judgment. A judgment which evaluates and settles the business of your whole life. All your life. All your time. Christ has died so that that sum total of your wickedness can be dealt with. Now, you see, some people imagine that Christ died for all the sins that humanity committed up until the time of that death. But then from then on, well, we're in trouble now. Because now we've got one. So that is what No, you've got one more. And you were facing one death. For the whole thing. Including all the sins you haven't yet committed. And when Christ died, he died that there might be no condemnation for any of it, the whole lot. This is in no way designed to encourage you to think that you can sin. 
We will have major argument if you suggest that. But I want to declare to you on the word of God that even sins you have not yet committed are forgiven by the blood of Christ, according to these scriptures. Don't sin. But should you? You have an advocate in heaven, but you also have a savior on earth. So that you don't need to think, as some people of sensitive nature might, oh, oh, you know, I've blown it. I'm finished. You know, I got converted last week. I got baptized yesterday. And now look what I've done. It doesn't work like that. Christ has died in order to cancel out the judgment that you may not yet face for years to come. Isn't that wonderful? He appeared in order to do that. Says verse 27, 28. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And now he will appear a second time. Not to bear sin. When Christ comes back, as he will, I hope soon. It would be great if he came back before the exams. For some of you. I mean, some of you are in, you know, you're in kind of, you're double-minded. You'd like him to come back before the exams, but you wouldn't want like him to come back before you got married. You know, is it kind of, you're not quite sure, are you? We're, it creates a certain ambivalence about the return of Christ. Well, I can, I can tell you, as a married person, let him come back as soon as he likes. <laughs> He's going to come back a second time, not now to bear sin, that's been done and dusted, but to bring salvation. What does that mean? That I've got salvation. Haven't you? Anybody here? Well, maybe there are some here who haven't yet. Keep listening. But many of you will be thinking, excuse me, I've got salvation. I've been singing about it. Yes, you have, but you haven't got all that there is involved in it. There's a lot more to come, you know. It's all part of the deal, but you haven't yet had everything, have you? You're going to get a new body. And the older you get, the more exciting that seems, I can tell you. <laughs> some of you may not think very much about that, but just wait. You're going to get a new home in heaven. Fantastic. A new home, rent-free, made by the Lord. I know that there's no giving and no taking in marriage in heaven, but I have booked a double room in my, um, in my plans for the future. There's going to be no more persecution. No more tears, no more death, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. Revelation 21. All this is part of the salvation that is yet to come. Now you may have persecution. I think in our country it will get worse. And in some countries at the moment it is exceptionally bad already. There is coming a day when that bit extra of our salvation, all bought and paid for by Christ, your new body where you'll be like him, like his resurrection body, all the new stuff that's coming, it's on its way, it's guaranteed, it's certain. He is going to appear a second time to bring salvation to those who are waiting. Stand on tiptoe waiting. Because there will come a day, and it may be in our, your lifetime, when the heavens will begin to open, when you hear the trumpet blown by that angel that Revelation speaks about. And there will be people who will be desperate, just crying out for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them. Because they have nowhere to hide. They are afraid of the face of him with whom they now have to deal. And their securities are collapsing. And their bank balances are worthless. And they are terrified that their creator is now coming for the evaluation of their lives. And so they try to hide under the mountains. And at exactly the same time you will see the believers. I'm here. I would love to be actually in the act of sharing the gospel with someone. At the point when the Lord is coming. Wouldn't that be the best visual aid that you could think of? <laughs> You'd almost think, hang on, hang on, just wait this. Quick, quick! <laughs> hang on, me, go, me, now. Yes. Shortest gospel evangelistic prayer I can think of. He's going to come. And he's going to come to bring all that is wrapped up in the achievement of the cross. Now we have the possibility of a completely clean 
freed up conscience so that we may serve properly. This is the purpose. Serve the living God. But you've only had a small part of the deal so far. It's enough to get excited about and to sing for a long time. But it's nothing compared with what's coming. And it's bought and paid for, as I've said. Then in chapter 10, he starts to answer the Jewish question that would be rising. Well, yeah, I can understand the way you put it, but what about all that stuff of those animals that have been slaughtered year by year ever since Moses uh, transmitted from God the instructions that we were to behave like that? Because God himself, as chapter 10 puts it, uh, gave those orders. Well, says the writer, we must understand a few things. Number one, the law. When it says the law, it means the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. Not just the Ten Commandments, but all the food regulations and all the Levitical stuff and so on. The law was ever only a shadow and not the reality itself. If you see a shadow, well, you, there's slight shadows around here, you know that there is a reality, but the shadow isn't it. I mean, you're really hungry. You've been out on a long walk. You're tired. You're struggling to stay awake. You, you're looking forward to um, the meal. And somebody sidles up to you with a cookery book. One of those, mod, oh, Jamie Oliver, one of these fantastic pictures. You could almost smell the meal just looking at the pictures. I'm going to do serious damage if I carry on. <laughs> You look at these pictures and you think, I'm so starving, and you rip the page out and stuff it into your mouth. Well, you don't, do you? Because that is just a picture. That is not the reality. There's no real nourishment in a page of a Jamie Oliver book. I could get you my wallet out and show you a picture of my wife. That is not the reality. That is only a picture. If I talk to the picture before I go to bed at night, I'm losing my marbles. <laughs> now says the writer, all that old system was only ever a thought model. It was designed to teach you certain things. In the same way that when you were a kid, you, you might play with Monopoly. Well, some of you may still play with Monopoly. You know, Monopoly money. Well, it's not real money. You know, you, you can't, you can't go down and buy CDs with, with Monopoly money. But you learn certain things about property prices and how you have to exchange stuff and what you do with money. You know. But it's just a, a model, it's a toy. In the same way, God always teaches us very practically with these kind of um, models. But the problem with the law, and he'll give you now three problems in the first uh, four verses. Number one it always left people dissatisfied. Those that practiced the old covenant sacrificial system, they were dissatisfied if they were honest and sensitive in any way at all because it did not make their consciences clean. Please don't ever imagine that under the Old Testament people sacrifice animals and now we have the sacrifice of Christ and all that old system accomplished exactly what the new system, that is simply not true. Under the old covenant, they were left permanently dissatisfied. If they could have sensed that their conscience was clean under the old sacrificial system, then all the rituals would have stopped because the job would have been done. But it left them with permanently dirty, damaged consciences. It's like, you know, supposing you've got uh, one of those medical conditions uh, where you need to take regular medication. You might be on antidepressants, or you might have um, blood pressure tablets or something. Now, taking those tablets daily or weekly or monthly or however often you have to take doesn't solve the problem. It only just enables you to keep on living. It doesn't take away forever, one pill, gone, the depression, uh, blood pressure problem solved just like that. No, it it suppresses the symptoms so that you can carry on living. That's all that the Old Testament sacrificial system did. It didn't cure the problem of a guilty conscience. In fact, it was worse than that. Secondly, 
it reminded people, that's what the verse says, verse 3, it acted as a regular reminder of people's sins. They were always having to come back and repeat the process, so they were always being reminded. Those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, because it is actually impossible. It's the third thing, actually impossible for the blood of an animal to cleanse a human of sin. Now think about it. A dumb animal. Let's just imagine. I've got a goat here. Meh. Bring this thing in. And it is about to be slaughtered. I have a knife. Sharpened for the purpose. I've got a rope wrapped round this thing's neck. I hold it nice and tight. And if you watch me, cut his jugular vein. And you give one last bleat. And then fall over. And life will be gone. I've seen it hundreds of times. A dumb animal has absolutely no concept of sin. Has never been haunted by its conscience. Doesn't know what a conscience is. Law, morality, spiritual wholeness. They don't mean anything to it. It's a goat. And when being offered in a place of sacrifice like that, it has no understanding of why it's dying. To the goat, the temple in Jerusalem is no different from a butcher's shop. It's impossible for the blood of a goat to take away the sin of someone who knows that they have rebelled who is made in the image of God, who has a capacity to love and to worship and to pray and to obey. Not only did this old system leave the worshippers dissatisfied, says the first four verses, but from verses 5 to 10, it left God dissatisfied too. Can I read to you um, the beginning of Isaiah? If, if you want to follow, it's um, Isaiah chapter 1, from verse 11. Because God had said this to the Old Testament Jews hundreds of years before. If they had the wit to pay attention to their own Bible, they would have known this. Isaiah 1, from verse 11 onwards. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Your new moon, Sabbaths and convocations I cannot bear. Your evil assemblies, your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. What an astonishing thing. Right there in their Old Testament scriptures, for God to be saying to them, they should have said, oh, well, what then? If you hate this, and we're doing it dutifully, what, what, what do we do now? Hebrews 10, in the middle of verse 5, suddenly records what amounts to a, a brief conversation within the Trinity. It is actually a quotation from Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, this is the Messiah speaking, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. No, God had said so 800 years before with Isaiah. Then I said, this is Jesus, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll of Isaiah. I have come to do your will. What God wanted all along was not an endless procession of sacrifices, mounds of dead animals. I was in, in Pakistan in, in uh, February, as I said, and it was the time of the festival of Eid. Probably in Pakistan alone, there were sacrificed one day something around one 
hundred million animals. And we'd watch them for days. They were brought in from the villages into the towns. They, each family would buy one. They would buy according to their uh, ability to pay. Some would buy a sheep. Some would buy a little goat. Some would buy something much more valuable. Certainly a, a calf, a cow, a bullock. That's getting expensive. A donkey, even more expensive. A camel, most of all. A hundred million. And you watched them, and they fed them carefully, lovingly. The children would pat them. They'd paint them up with little bright colors. And then from early in the morning, they'd cut their throats. The streets were running with blood. Mounds of the heads of dead animals' skins. It was awful. People doing it because they believe God is pleased. That he wants this kind of sacrifice. At the end of time, when you're put in the balances according to their understanding, well, what has been the value of the sacrifices that you've been involved with? Have you sacrificed a lot? Because somehow they think God is impressed by this. And God has been saying in his word, I hate it, I hate it. What on earth are you doing? Reducing yourselves to the level of an animal so that the death of an animal can, can somehow um, compensate for your sin. It was obedience that God wanted. Love, forgiveness, practical service. Romans chapter 12. I urge you, I beg of you, in the light of all the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as living sacrifices. The most remarkable chapter where he will talk about you offering your body and then he will go on to talk about your place in his body. But you can study that later. Let's read on in Isaiah. Um, from verse 15, because he, he continues to spell this out. Um, when you, Isaiah 1, 15, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Why not? Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they can be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So Christ came and offered himself, knowing fully the heart of a holy God. So we've been singing, holy, holy, holy. Who, who perceives that better than any of us? Jesus. He knew the heart of God. He knew the sinfulness of man. He knew what he was doing. He wasn't like some dumb animal brought into a temple. Uh, mm -hmm. And what's all this about? <coughs> Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed for the forgiveness of those that were crucifying him. He knew exactly what was going to happen. My father, why have you forsaken me? That moment, experiencing the hell that you and I deserve. By the offering of himself as the one infinitely perfect sacrifice for an infinite number of sinful human beings, he has done for us that which will never need to be repeated ever. <coughs> so you see what the implications of this are. They are enormous. It means that when people teach that in the Mass, we have to repeat the sacrifice over and over again for today's crop of worshippers, rubbish. It is not true. When a Muslim imagines that they have to give sacrifices in order to impress God by the value of that which they kill. Rubbish. It is not true. When evangelicals start to imagine that they have to do this and that and the other in order to rack up their stars and ticks with God. Rubbish. It's not true. You cannot be loved more than God loves you right now. And his forgiveness is complete. 
It is the most liberating thing that a person can ever know. And this, says our passage, was God's will all along. Christ was in the mind and heart and plan of God, slain before the foundation even of the world. It's always planned this way. That we should have forgiveness and a clean conscience and the Holy Spirit, and that would lead then to our obedience. Verse 10, by God's will, we have been made holy. That means we have been called and set apart as special unto God. Made holy in that sense. And so, verse 11 of chapter 10. I just need to read it really, because it's so plain now. Day after day, every priest stands, we talked about that this morning, and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down. Job done. At the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. We were thinking about that this morning in the quotation um, from, from Psalm. He waits. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Do you see the, 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 the tenses there? He has set you apart. He has said, right, you're mine. You're mine. You're mine. You're special. You, you, you. Right. You are now regarded as holy. I've set you apart. But... In this process, I am going to be making you holy. He's made you perfect while he is making you holy. And he will make you holy. How? By his word, by his spirit, by the circumstances of your life, by the Christian union, by the people you marry. <laughs> Choose well. By the suffering the pain perhaps, the failures, the disappointments, all the time as the word of God and the circumstances around, God is working to make you like himself. That's it, that's the plan. Now you get a little um, picture of this with, with children. Children grow up like their parents. It is a sad and distressing thing. <clears throat> when I was growing up, my voice, uh, when I was about 10, sounded on the telephone exactly like my mother. It was identical. And my father was an Anglican minister. And various people would ring up my mother, you know, ladies from the parish who in distress. And I used to answer the phone and have a most interesting time. <laughs> and they would tell me about what their husbands were doing and the wicked stuff. And I didn't have to say very much, yes, oh dear. You get bored, put the phone down, you see. <clears throat> and the poor lady would meet my mother, you know, next week in the street and be a little bit hurt that my mother couldn't remember this conversation that she'd had on the phone. But of course not, she's had it with me, age of ten. Well, it's inevitable that I must sound like my mother, not like yours. Heredity. I have three children, grown up most of the time. And um, one of them just loves to stand in front of people and talk to them. She takes after her mother. Heredity. Now... We get examples of that when we look in the mirror, when we consider our own parents, when we have our own kids. It's, it's brought before us all the time in life. The same is, is designed to be true in the real eternal family. God puts his spirit within you and he wants to change you from the trap of being like your earthly parents with all their sin. I mean, they're sinners. Uh, they fail. And he wants to gradually through the process of his word and his gospel and his spirit, make you like himself. And the verses in chapter 10, from 15 to 18, give us the, the neatest encapsulation of the deal, if you like, the, the new covenant, which is the basis upon which this is working out. This is something that God had promised very clearly, at around the same time of Isaiah, although it was actually in the mouth of Jeremiah. If you're in the habit of looking back with me, turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 31. And you can see the thing promised, and it's so clear, and Hebrews quotes it. Because this is a covenant, this is a legal arrangement, drawn up, we may say, by the greatest lawyer in the universe, God himself. The time is coming, chapter 31, verse 31, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke it. They broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. And here are its terms. And if you're looking at your text, you see it goes into inverted commas. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people and no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more do you see how that is quoted in Hebrews 10 from 15 down to 18 a covenant, as I said, is a legal arrangement between two parties. It's a binding uh, thing. And the two parties in this case are God and his people. And if you are one of his people, this is for you. This is the basis upon which you relate to God and your hopes and expectations for the future are framed. Notice its term. God says, now I will write my laws on people's hearts. Do you see the difference? Not on tablets of stone. Not on things at the front of Anglican churches. But inside you. In your heart. Where is kept what you most value. Where you love. That's where God writes. And I will also write it on people's minds. So that it isn't just a matter of their affection, but their understanding as well. God is writing in you writing his word, writing his character, Jesus the living word, writing his promises, and he's doing it by his spirit. God will bring to bear understanding and a change of love so that our character changes. That's the term of the new covenant. And then look how there's a third clause. Never again will I remember their sins and lawless now, what a contrast that is to this process of constantly bringing up sin and failure and reminding you year after year after year. Now God is saying, look, under this new covenant, I will never again remember. That doesn't mean to say he forgets in the sense of, you know, <laughs> supposing, let me put it like this, you're walking along in heaven one day. And you come around the corner, and there's Jesus. Oh, hello, Lord. I was only just thinking about you. <laughs> and being British you put out your hand to shake him by the hand and as he puts his hand out to shake you you say oh you've got a hole in it a hole in your hand where did that come from a hole said Jesus dear me never noticed that before <laughs> I don't know where that came from I don't think so he knows why it's there And so will you. I know exactly. I've thought it all out. I know exactly what I'm going to do when I meet Christ face to face. I'm going to look in his eyes. And then I want to see his hands. Those nail prints. Those wounds, as the hymn writer puts it, yet visible above. He knows exactly why they're there. And you know that it was your sin that put those marks. It's astonishing, isn't it? A human being like you can leave an indelible mark in God. But the great thing that this verse says is that he will never hold it against you. It's not remember in the sense that he somehow forgets. It's remember against. It's a, it's a, it's a much more careful legal term. He will never bring it up against you. Now, isn't that remarkable when you see the way he has written it? God says, 
You're welcome to the new covenant. You're welcome into the most holy place. And I'm going to start writing. And I'm going to write in what you love. And I'm going to write in what you understand. And even then you'll fail. There'll come weeks sometimes when you think, I don't know whether I've made any progress as a Christian or not. Look at the mess I'm in now about something. And the bottom last line of this new covenant is, I am going to forgive you. You can be sure of it. Even after you have again rebelled against what he's written inside you, you may be sure that he will never again remember your sins and lawless acts against you. Horatius Bonner, the hymn writer of, of an earlier century. No blood, no altar now. The sacrifice is all. No flame, no smoke ascends on high. The lamb is slain no more. But richer blood has flowed from nobler veins to purge the soul from guilt and cleanse the reddest stains. That's what he's done. And the new covenant is the best deal possible because it is a covenant where only one party has obligations. You see, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and I'm also going to do this. So what do you do? Just say thank you. You have no obligations. You see, under the old covenant, it was a two-party thing, and you had to do this and that and the other. Under the new covenant, because you have no obligations, you can't break it. You see? What security could be better than that? You cannot break it. So what are the implications of all this? If we have such a great salvation, such a once-for-all sacrifice at the cross, such a deal that we're offered, affecting our heart and our mind and our future and, and our eternal hopes in glory. Well, from 1019 onwards, um, he starts to draw out some of the implications. And the first is confidence. You can have confidence. He gives you three reasons for that. One is a new way has been opened up into God's presence. Do you see? Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. Now, he's not simply saying, oh, by the way, now you can pray with confidence, you know. Believers have always done that. All the way through the Old Testament, believers would pray with confidence. You'll find Abraham praying, and Moses praying, and David praying, and so on. Nor is he saying that the gates of heaven are now open so that you can be confident that when you die, you will go to be with the Lord. He's not saying that either. No, read it carefully. It's a much bigger truth than either of those. He is saying that you may come now every day of the year, not just once a year, whether you are Jews or Gentiles, whether you are men or women, you may come and do what the Jewish high priest did very nervously only once a year and stand in the immediate presence of God in heaven, the most holy place. You may come in spirit and stand before God. That's what it says. Brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. That's right in here. By the blood of Jesus. You may come as you are, and in spirit and in prayer, stand before God. What a remarkable thing. And it's not only a new way, it's a living way. It's not like walking through some kind of minefield one foot wrong and you, you're, you're done for. There's no risk of being struck down because you got too close. Again and again in the Old Testament, they went too close to Sinai. If the wrong person touched the Ark of the Covenant, you know, people were, were struck down. No, this is safe. This is a new and living way that has been opened up for us by Jesus in his death and resurrection. 
Jesus isn't saying, you know, after all these years, I've got a bit patient with people and I've come to realize that sin isn't too bad. And I'm going to turn a blind eye to a bit of it. No, no, sin is really serious. You don't know how serious. It is really serious because God is really holy. But a new, living, safe way has been opened up for us into the most holy place by the blood of Christ. So John the Baptist would say, all these sacrifices you know that you bring year by year, stop. Because now, today, God has brought his perfect lamb. Behold the lamb of God. That is going to take away the sin of the entire world. John 1.29 Wonderful. Stand back and watch the perfect lamb of God. In the Passover, they had to keep the little lamb, you know, tied for three days. They wouldn't look at it to see it was perfect. Because you wouldn't be offering God, would you? Some lame, blind old thing. Thing that, you know, you better hurry up because if you wait four days, it'll die with don't call. You weren't supposed to offer God anything like that. And so you kept the lamb tethered to see that it was perfect. It wasn't coughing, wasn't blind, wasn't lame, wasn't off its food. It was in the prime of life. God tethered Jesus. Not for three days, but for many, many years, 33 years in Israel. He wasn't allowed to go outside, apart from that trip as a baby to Egypt. Tethered, so that people could see how perfect he was, and then put to death. We can walk that way and live, says the writer. And thirdly, we have a high priest. Yeah, right, see, it says it. We have a new, a living way, opened up for us through the curtain. That is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. You might be thinking, well, let me give an illustration. Supposing you've been invited, shall we imagine, uh, to visit the Queen, and uh, maybe to receive some award or something. Student of the year. And it's the Queen's going to be giving you this thing, and you're going to have to spend half an hour with her, and you're a little bit nervous. And you're not sure what the etiquette and protocol is, how to behave with the queen. And you arrive at the palace and you're absolutely astonished. Because there's the guy that you used to be at school with. I mean, you, you, you've done everything with that bloke. Laughed and joked and been to youth clubs and been away on school trips. And you discover that he's become the queen's private secretary. I mean, you've not been in touch with each other for a few years. And he, he actually is the person who has... Um, masterminded many of these ceremonies and he knows exactly how you should behave he does it all the time he puts you at ease and he guarantees that if you do it as he is whispering to you everything will go fine and even the queen will enjoy it. Mm -hmm. now you arrive before almighty God and you find that you have a high priest who tells you how to behave who makes your stumbling efforts acceptable has even shed his own blood that your feeble prayers might be made more acceptable to God. Who over the years will teach you how to worship, teach you how to humble yourself, how to speak, how to behave. We have a great high priest. Well, in the light of all that, let us be confident, let us draw near to God. So, first confidence, second result is action. And you are to come in the following way, sincere, full assurance in your faith, you may speak out of your heart everything that's on your heart. Don't be doubtful, don't think that God isn't interested in the stuff that's on your heart. Come in full assurance of faith, come in sincerity, come cleansed from a guilty conscience. That's what it says, Spring, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed this is this symbolic language of the tabernacle again. You remember your journey in the sacrifice. In that big brass field. Fascinating, actually. That great big brass full of water. The water that was to be used to cleanse people. It was made out of the brass mirror of the wood. In the mirror that we have. Can you imagine living 
without a mirror. Forever. I mean, our houses are full of mirrors. We have mirrors in our bedroom. Some houses have mirrors just by the front door so that you can throw a little tart up before you step out. Some people keep mirrors on them, in their handbags. People are always looking in mirrors. You watch people sometimes walking past windows, or kindness. We're always looking to see how we look. What these women did was hand them brass mirrors in. They say, right, we're not going to care as much about our outward appearance as our inward. And we will sacrifice these mirrors in order to create something which will contribute to the um, holiness and love of our priests. You come on your way in, having your heart cleansed, your body washed by pure water, making your way in, um, learning to pray, appearing before God. Be confident. Act. Time's gone. I'm just finished. You've got, did you re notice as we read through, <clears throat> lettuce, 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 lettuce. He put you on a lettuce diet. And simply this. Let us, verse 23, hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Verse 24, let us consider, way up in our minds, how we may spur one another on to acts of love and practical kindness. Think about it. How to do that. 25, let us keep meeting together. Don't drop off. Don't become lazy about the disciplines of going sometimes to the meetings of fellowship. Even though you don't always feel like it, you may well be able to encourage others even just by being there. Sometimes those that have been on an exec committee for a year, they reach the end of the year, <laughs> they dump the files on the desk of the person who is their successor, and then they're never seen again by the senior, because they're panicking now about their exams. Don't do it. Even, even in a relay race, you know, the, the person who's done one leg r runs a little bit alongside the person who's taking the bat on and gives them a few gee-up encouragements. Let us consider... Uh, how to stir one another up, let us keep meeting together, and verse 25, let us encourage one another, and all the more, as we get closer to the day of the return of Christ. Think about how to encourage your friends in their Christian walk. Stir them up. Challenge them. Bless them. Love them. Be practical. These are all implications of the cross. It is a very practical thing that God has done. Let's pray. Lord, we have considered these things from your word and we've sensed your spirit making concrete and practical and stirring us up. And we pray now, Lord, against that tendency we have to listen and nod to look in the mirror and then forget. Lord, please, may your word, the good of it, the insights, the challenges be sealed now in our hearts. Good seed, there to germinate and grow. Where we have friendships, prayer partnerships, help us, Lord, to lovingly stir one another up to the best of standards that we can manage. As we thought tonight about our giving, Lord, we, we don't want to give just to the CU, but to you. <clears throat> Help us to be generous in giving to you. Those on the fringes, Lord, that, that the stragglers, the people that even wonder whether they can be comfortable in the CU, perhaps especially a CU that's really going for it. Lord, may we have a heart for the fringy folks, the people who do struggle, to lovingly, gently stir them, encourage them, challenge them. Lord, may the practical implications in our lives of the cross go very deep. For your name's sake we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. 
For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.